As we've heard those powerful words of Paul, using words that are so strong for us, love and hate, it reminded me of how often we use those words in kind of a flippant way. I was at the Clippers game this last Friday night with my family, and we saw the Clippers mascot, which is a seal called Lucille, which is spelled L-O-U-S-E-A-L. The seal is kind of dressed like a nautical character, like a sailor, and it's greeting the kids, and the kids love Lucille as much as uh, kids always seem to love mascots like Brutus Buckeye. Now, I have permission to tell this story, but my son-in-law, Jason Downey, he doesn't like to be the center of attention, but uh, he said he had gone to the old Cooper Stadium with some friends when he was in college, and he won or caught a pizza box with a coupon in it, which he was to open while appearing on the drum jumbotron. And he was having difficulty opening the box, and he was being taunted by his friends when Lucille joined in the taunting as well. Now, you expect this from your college friends, but not from the Clippers mascot. And uh, apparently, he has held a grudge for many years. Because <laughs> on Friday night, he said to Elizabeth when he saw Lucille, I hate Lucille. <laughs> As I said, I had Jason's permission to share this example because I had been contemplating all week how flippantly we use the words love and hate. Uh, it can be with the regard to food when people say, I love chocolate or I hate broccoli. Or maybe with regard to sports, I hear this often, you know, I love the Buckeyes or I hate the Wolverines. People may say they love or hate a particular type of music or performer, and it is probably most serious in the political world when we say we love or hate a certain candidate or a public official or even entire groups of people. We use these terms in varying degrees of intensity, but they can reflect deep emotional attachments and aversions. Our text today is from Paul's great letter to the church in Rome, and in it he uses both love and hate to introduce a series of individual moral exhortations. They are strung together almost like a string of pearls and are held together by particular words and themes. You could almost have a sermon on any number of the parts of this text, but the very first line has the words hate and love in the very first line. The early exhortations seem to be describing obligations to people as Christians, as members of a community of faith, of having obligations uh, to one another. But the later ex exhortations describe obligations we owe to the wider community, even to those who may hate us or persecute us or who we may be in conflict with. However, wherever these exhortations are in the text, they're all under the general principle, the same principle that Paul asserts governs all things, the rule of love. Of course, Paul's great statement on Christian love is in 1 Corinthians 13, which we often read at weddings, but is perfectly appropriate for funerals or any time. Great statement that says, that whatever we do, even if we do it very well, if we do it without love, it means nothing. 
a very strong statement indeed. And at the end of that text, it says, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The Greek word agape is used frequently in the New Testament. I, I read a commentary that said Paul uses the phrase about 75 times. It's over 100 times in the Scriptures generally. We can all think about John's letter, which, which says that God is love. And, uh, and we also think of the great commandment in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is that we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the great principle of love runs throughout the Scriptures. And it seems when we look at non-biblical literature from the time that the emphasis on love was uniquely part of the early church, possibly because the church so clearly had experienced grace. The Christian community describes this experience of grace in the context of Christian love. If you look at the entire text at the beginning of the chapter, Paul is really asking for a new way of thinking and being in the world. He is urging a new way of Christian life grounded in love. And of course he writes, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. When we think about love being genuine, Paul first is beginning to say, be sincere, be authentic, be genuine without hypocrisy. Don't be, let it be feigned, don't fake it. Up to this point in the text, he has used agape to mean divine love. Now he uses it to mean an outgoing, selfless concern for a fellow human being. We sometimes will know when someone is being insincere, other times we may not. We may or may not know when we're being sincere or not. However, we are all called to love in an authentic, sincere way. Of course, you know and I know that it is hard in certain situations and circumstances to love. We have been hurt or aggrieved in some way. It may be in our own families or personal relationships, or in a wider world that seems indifferent or even actively participating in our pain and suffering. Someone has done us or another we love real harm, and we all know of individual examples of violence against or exploitation of a human being by another. Paul says we are called to hate evil, even to detest evil, as we are to love those who persecute us or perpetrate evil. Indeed, we are called to bless and not curse them, and this is a tall order. But follow, Paul follows the tradition of the Sermon on the Mount that calls us, in the words of Jesus, to love our enemies, to love those who persecute or even hate us. So what is the relationship between love and hate? How is it that we as people of faith are to love genuinely, authentically, both ourselves and others, even as we hate evil we find in ourselves and others? And what of the evil in systems and structures in which we participate, consciously or unconsciously, these are all hard questions, but it's clear 
that we are, as human beings, capable of great love and also of great hate. One thing is true when Paul talks about God's love, the divine love. It truly is that it's God's love for us that truly allows us to love others. It is that divine love accepting us by grace that helps us to be transformed in our minds and to not be conformed to this world, a world with so many examples of hate and violence toward others. So Paul is really saying that it is truly only by God's grace that we can hate evil but not hate people. I was with my Cum Cristo group uh, yesterday, and we meet every Saturday morning, and we honestly were having a hard time staying positive in a world with so much suffering, particularly as we saw the many images from Houston in the past week. However, I really appreciated Dr. Miles' pastoral prayer last week, where he reminded us in so many situations of disasters like Houston and of the violence and the, and the strife in our own society and culture, that it's too easy often to forget, to accentuate the positive in the sense that we often go to the negative, whether in the church or the wider world, even though there are many people in the church and the world attempting to alleviate suffering, to care for one another. Yes, the negative is true, and we can't be in denial. I always think back many, many years ago when I was reading The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, and many of us in those times might have read that book. And not to knock the book, but, it, but honestly, it seemed like we were supposed to override the negative with truly putting positive thoughts in our mind. And sometimes I kind of resented that, and yet it's also true that we can dwell on the negative, many of those things that we can't control, and to the exclusion of those not only blessings in our lives, but opportunities to love and serve one another. So there's a deep truth there. When Paul talks about renewing our minds, there's a deep truth about the reality that what we think often affects how we view life and the world. Yes, there is even an evil in the world, and we are called to hate that evil and to detest it. But it's also true that we are to be genuinely loving, loving of one another and even of our enemies. Yesterday, I spoke with a college roommate and his wife who live in Houston. Fortunately, their house did not flood. I had been wondering all week and tried to get in touch with them, and they were able to get back to me. There had much water in their neighborhood, but it didn't get into their house nor in their daughter's house. But there was tremendous damage and suffering in their immediate neighborhood and the area as well. And the description of the water was extraordinary. Their daughter, who lives in Houston as well, is my goddaughter. And I had the joy of officiating at her marriage and the sorrow of officiating at her husband's service of memory less than a year after they were married. It's been a hard time for her, but she has been a teacher and has thrown herself in the midst of this challenge in Houston into helping her friends and her neighbors in this devastating flood. 
She was in a store when a police officer was purchasing rain gear necessary for the work that he was doing, and the police department, its resources were stretched thin as they rescued so many people stranded by the storm. She purchased the rain gear for the officer, and the police department expressed its appreciation. The police department expressed its appreciation on its website. So we can look to those times that even in the midst of most distressing situations, people can reach out in love. And we've seen so many examples of that in the midst of this extraordinary disaster. Of course, there are many things in this world that are powerful images for us and for our lives in this community and in the community of faith. Many people know that I often look at history when, because history has meant so much to me when I was growing up and in my life. When I was in the fourth grade, my friend from across the street uh, and I took a train from the railroad station in downtown Columbus. Now that dates me when you could take a passenger train from downtown Columbus. But we were going overnight to Philadelphia to visit his grandparents in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. We traveled by ourselves in a sleeping car overnight and our parents put us on the train in the care of the porters. Many of you remember those extraordinary people who served on those passenger trains. And we were assured that we would be watched and cared for properly, which we indeed were. We arrived safely and had a wonderful time. However, my father apparently said to Dr. Livingston, the father of my friend, as we put, were put on the train, he says, Nori, do you know what we just did? We put those boys on a train by themselves. Obviously, it was an act of faith that the railroad road would deliver us safely to our destination and into the hands of John's grandmother and grandfather. They in turn cared for us in their home and showed us the historic sites of Philadelphia, such as Independence Hall and Valley Forge. And I was very impressionable. I think my interest in American history was kindled on that trip. I also remember seeing City Hall on the main line with the statue of William Penn on top of that building. Of course, Penn was a Quaker, as were John's grandparents, and they took us to a Quaker meeting house for worship. In such a gathering, there is little or no liturgy with people speaking when moved by the Spirit. This was my first experience of worship in another tradition, although I was to have other experiences through this church through the traveling freshmen when in ninth grade we would get on buses here and go to other churches to experience worship in different traditions. I can remember going to a Russian Orthodox church and also to a Baptist church, Methodist, many others. But that was my first experience and I remember people would stand up and talk about anything that they were moved to speak about. And that could be issues of the day, the life of the Spirit, but it was all to be speaking when moved to speak. Although I didn't know much at that time, I was too young, but it, later I learned that this mix of faith and politics, which has been a blessing and a source of conflict in our society, is really part of the Quaker tradition. Quakers had a tradition and a history of opposition to slavery and were known as pacifists, some who would not go into military service. Our country has struggled with the legacy of slavery and racial discrimination, 
and was born through revolution and war itself. Thus, we have always known competing values and loyalties in our lives. I recently read the novel The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd. It is historical fiction based on the lives of Sarah and Angelina Grimke, two sisters from Charleston, South Carolina before the Civil War. They became Quakers and abolitionists and feminists. And it reminded me that to be a Quaker at that time was truly to be viewed as an opponent of the culture of the times and its laws. And these two women were extraordinary in, in their opposition to slavery and their early advocacy of women's rights. Many of you have seen the movie Lincoln by Steven Spielberg. Towards the end of the movie, Lincoln delivers some of the well-known lines from his second inaugural address, expressing his hope for a just and lasting peace after such a terrible war. In the book, Lincoln's Greatest Speech by Ronald C. White, Jr., he argues that Lincoln was asking the nation to think theologically and not just politically about the conflict. Lincoln said both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. He observed that neither side's prayers were fully answered. Lincoln made a clear moral judgment against those who invoked God's aid in support of slavery. He recognized that slavery was a national sin and that he had a moral duty to make judgments. But he said he had no illusions about his judgments being God's judgments. Thus he quoted scripture, scripture and said, let us judge not that we not be judged. Frank Frederick Douglass, the ex-slave who was a giant in the abolitionist movement, said it read more like a sermon than a state paper. White went on to quote the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, a great theologian and ethicist in our tradition in the last century, who had written on Lincoln in the Christian century. White said, Niebuhr appreciated Lincoln's ability in the second inaugural address to balance moral judgments with religious reservations about the partiality of those judgments. Thus, he balanced his moral judgment with mercy. This is not moral equivalency. There was still work to be done against slavery and against racism and remains so today. But Lincoln wrote, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in. I think that is a model, much in the words of Paul, to let love be genuine, to hate what is evil, but not to hate others. Of course, Lincoln politically was trying to bring reconciliation between North and South for the war looked like it was coming to an end. And so that was an objective. And even though that was an objective, the other objective was not fully realized. I have a personal memory of the Lincoln Memorial. I remember interviewing for a summer internship in Washington, D.C. when I was in college. At the end of the day, before I went to National Airport to fly back to Columbus, I went to the Lincoln Memorial, which was nearby to where I had had the interview. So I had time to walk up the steps, and then once you get to the top, you can walk around to the back. 
and you can look across Memorial Bridge to Arlington National Cemetery. Up on that uh, hill above that bridge on that side is what is called Arlington House. It used to be called the Custis Lee Mansion. It was the house of Robert E. Lee, who had married a descendant of George Washington's stepdaughter, Nellie Custis, a descendant of his wife. The property was taken by the government during the war, and the cemetery was established there, which is, to many, a sacred place. The grave of John Kennedy, with its eternal flame, was placed on the hill below the house. Thus, the Memorial Bridge is a symbolic linking of North and South. However, the war abolished slavery, but it did not eliminate racism that continues to plague the country today. And yet there are so many mon monuments and symbols that call us to think about that time and also about our present time. It happened that there had been a major demonstration in Washington the week I was there, and I was sitting there looking across that bridge. Uh, I saw many military vehicles pulling out of the city, having been there at a time of civil unrest. It was the era of the civil rights movement, of Vietnam and Watergate. I had loved Washington since my parents took me to Gettysburg, the District of Columbia, and Williamsburg when I was in the seventh grade. It was probably the reason I ended up working there for six years after law school. But its monuments and historical sites, and there are many now along the Mall, remind us of issues that continue to divide us. The Vietnam and Martin Luther King memorials are near to the Lincoln Memorial. And so as I sat there and realized the dissent in the country then and now, it was hard to accept in the midst of these symbols that had become almost religious to me, we still had much to secure in the way of human rights and the rights of our community. Dissent is always a part of the experience of not only life in Washington, but in the world in which we live. There is tension between love of country and hate of the ways in which it falls short of our ideals. It has been said that America was built on an idea that we have been trying to live up to throughout our history. It is this idea that binds us together rather than a particular culture, ethnicity, race, religion, or nationality. We are in many tribes, but we are one nation. And dissent challenges us to live up to what we profess. As I say, these symbols and images are extraordinarily powerful. They're powerful in my life. I think growing up and studying history, it became almost a spiritual thing for me to encounter some of these places. The controversy over athletes not standing for the Star-Spangled Banner is a case in point. We stand because we love our country, and some may choose to sit to protest that we have not lived up to what we profess to be. Historical and political symbols and images can take on almost religious or divine qualities. I know that to be true as I've looked back on my own life and seen the importance of our history to me. The Dallas Cowboys coach has said that the Star-Spangled Banner is sacred to him. Thus, the protests 
against standing for the Star-Spangled Banner are deeply disturbing to him and to many. However, if anything, history is a study of human nature and those things that unite us and divide us as human beings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Ethics, which was published posthumously after his execution in a Nazi prison camp. In it, he said that patriotism and love of country are important concerns, but they are penultimate rather than ultimate values. Our ultimate loyalty is to God, and sometimes our love of country must yield to it as it did for him when he opposed Adolf Hitler. Similarly, Paul Tillich said that God is the ground of our being and our ultimate concern. Thus, we have give thanks for our country and love it, but we are ultimately members of the body of Christ, citizens of the kingdom of God. Many of you remember the movie, it's now many years since it came out, called Chariots of Fire. And of course, that was about a British runner in the Olympics at the time. And he was a devout Christian, an evangelical, who did not want to run in the Olympics on Sunday because he wanted to keep the Sabbath as he felt called to do. And the Olympic Committee of the United Kingdom, it's kind of an interesting scene in the movie. They're talking about this, and they were talking about how important love of God and love of country are. And one older member of the committee said, well, in my day, it was love of country over love of God. But of course, that was just the point. It was love of God over love of country for Eric Little, the one who did not run in that race. And a Jewish member of the Olympic team was the one who went on to win the medal. Yes, we do have love and care and concern for many things that are truly important, but ultimately everything is subject to God. The ethics of Bonhoeffer was grounded in the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry is when we worship something less than God as if it were God. This goes beyond the worship of other deities to the elevation of temporal matters to ultimate value in our lives. Thus, loyalty to one's nation or family or tribe is important because it is something larger than us, but it is not our ultimate value. If it becomes our ultimate value, it is idolatrous, which is a distortion of our values, and it can truly lead to violence and injustice of all kinds. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us that our neighbor goes beyond our country, our family, our tribe. In fact, one of Jesus' most difficult sayings is that one must hate one's family to follow him. No, it's not that we truly hate in that way. Once again, a distortion of that word. But he's saying if family, as important as it is, is still subject to a higher duty to a higher calling. Our first loyalty is to God and God's vision of a just and loving world. So as Lincoln reminded us, 
Strive for the right as we see it, but do so with humility, with civility, and with love. Amen.